are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Process-driven, sculptural, subtly aggressive. Nicole Carroll is a composer, performer, sound designer, and builder based in Providence, Rhode Island, where she is currently pursuing a PhD in computer music and multimedia at Brown University. Her work spans installation, improvisation, and fixed-media performance, She is active as a sound designer and composer for theater, performs electronic music under the alias Noisemaker, N-0-I-Z-M-K-R, and builds custom synthesizers and performance sensor systems. Themes found in her work derive from reflections on nature, supernatural phenomenon, literature, and the human psyche. Let's start with uh, Wicker. And I saw on on the tags... Uh, for this piece on SoundCloud that you tagged the ARP 2500, which is an analog modular synth, and also Super Collider, mm-hmm. which is a co- which is a coding environment. So, can you talk about the role that each of these two things played in the in developing this piece, Wicker? Okay, so a lot of my pieces um, are based on feedback networks. So with Wicker, I have the ARP 2500 as the primary uh, sound production tool and super collider as not the only processor but doing most of the processing so i start with a single oscillator on the arp i send that to super collider it goes through some resonators and then super collider sends uh information the audio back to the uh back to the arp and then the arp modulates that signal and sends it back to super collider and so that's the basic system Okay, and then when you, so this piece is meant to be a fixed media piece, is that right? Yes. So basically, um, it is a fixed media piece, and unlike some of the other art pieces that I have that are more performative, uh, that piece I I wrote the code in Super Collider, and then I set uh, the oscillators and the modulators and the filters on the ARP, and then I just started it and then let it go until it exploded. And then that's oh. when I stopped. So I'm not actually, okay. yeah, I'm not doing anything. I'm just letting Super Collider and the ARP like play each other. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, there are there are a number of different things that are going on in in this piece. So literally, it's it's just like a one take performance. Yes. Wow, I didn't get that at all. <laughs> I thought this was like very, you know, meticulously. I, meticulous is a bad word, but I thought it was like multiple different things you were creating with the synthesizer and then, you know, doing something in Sound Collider, but then dropping that into a DAW at some point and, you know, arranging everything. Uh, but this is literally, wow. Yeah, there's no arranging. Obviously, I did some mastering, but um, there are some, there is sequencing happening in Super Collider. So it's not doing the same okay. thing every time. Um, right. So that's why it feels like, yeah, there's been some arranging because the arranging is happening in, in the Super Collider code. Oh, okay. So S- Super Collider is uh, providing all the like cues and triggers to do this now, do this later, you know, change this over time yes. type of stuff. Yes. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. And the ARP just reacts. It just reacts. Yeah. Okay. So how did you get to that place with the ARP where you had this like, so you're not changing anything during the performance on the ARP. Correct. It's just set and it's ready to go. Correct. 
Okay. So how, what was that process of getting from, you know, deciding, okay, I want to write a piece like this and then experimenting with the different settings on the ARP? Like, were did you have a, a specific thing in mind that you were going for or was it more experimentation with with that instrument? Um, it came after some months of experimentation, of going through the ARP very meticulously through um, each module and like basically making a piece using like one module at a time. A little essay uh-huh. piece, but studies. Um, and so figuring out all the little quirks of each module and then what happens when you, you know, add those together. And really like working with the feedback network- networks is something that I've been doing for a while, um, for years, I guess, really. Yeah. Um, in Max and um, with other hardware circuit sound making things that I make. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So really, it's just like the the process is something that I've been doing for a long time, and it was just porting that over to SuperCollider and the ARP. You're you're at Brown finishing your PhD right now, correct? Um, finishing. I am at year three out of five, <laughs> so I'm oh, okay. right in the middle. <laughs> All right. Well, you're in some process of you're in some stage of finishing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so it, Brown obviously has this instrument. Yes. When you when you stepped into the studio, was it just kind of like, oh, it's here? Because I mean, that's the that's the big deal about using some of these, you know, vintage or old synths is just like they aren't around anymore. So you actually had the physical instrument in front of you instead of an emulator. Yes. And I mean, what what is that like? Because I've never been able to work on on something like that. What's the what's the workflow like? You know. Well. I use a, I make a lot of sketches, like actual pencil to paper sketches, because unlike uh-huh. in SuperCollider or in Max, you can't save presets. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so once you change something, it's gone, and then you may never get that particular sound back. So when you're when you're doing this, you know, are you pretty much just recording all the time? I record a lot of the time. Yeah. So honestly, yeah. I have hours and hours of ARP recordings, which at this point I've now um, just like made a sample bank of, and I use those samples in Max because the ARP does not go anywhere. It's huge. It's not really, it does not want to be moved. It's very finicky. Um, So unfortunately, even though I've come to love it and I love the sound that it makes and the physical like interaction with that instrument, it's, I can't take it anywhere. Um, so I can only really make fixed media pieces with it, but I do a lot of live performance, live improvisation. So right. I have used it also as just you know samples. G- getting back to the whole idea of you know pretty much setting setting up a the the physical instrument and then just letting things go and then recording that was that out of necessity, just based on the fact that this is how you wanted to work, or did you have some you know previous uh, did like other composers kind of inspire that method of working? Um, it's definitely not out of necessity. Um, some of the other pieces uh, I do perform like through throughout the piece, and it's just it's just a way that I wanted to work. I like to build these these um, random chance systems within the feedback system, um, and just seed something and just see what happens yeah obviously I'm, I'm coming you know from a Cajun perspective in that way just to let the I don't know yeah 
end take, end sentence. <laughs> let the let the dice fall. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it also, you know, it also calls to mind composers like Pauline Oliveros or uh, Elian Radig, you know, where they were. Like I'm thinking of, uh, I mean, you just made me think of uh, Oliveros uh, one of four, you know, where she's going in with a bunch of feedback and and just like hit record and let's do this, you know. Mm-hmm. So were the were those types of composers, uh, obviously Cage from the perspective of aleatoric music or chance music, but were were those composers influential? Uh, definitely. In fact, um, Elian's method was. Probably the the most prominent inspiration, especially for floaters, um, in the uh-huh. way that she would sit at um, the synthesizer and just make really, really small movements over a very long period of time. Right. So I, f- I found that um, it's meditative and it's inspiring, and yeah. So that's that's a method that I wish I could do more, but I think I'm a little bit too anxious to. <laughs> to move that slowly over that long period of time. So I wish that's something that I should do more of and I would like to do more of. What is the meaning of the title? I mean, based on what you've what you've told me about the piece for Wicker, at least, it seems like the the network that you've created calls to mind like a woven type thing. Is that what you're going for or something completely different? It is in the sense... So twofold, uh, wicker referring to the material, wicker that, you know, we make wicker baskets and chairs and sure. whatever out of. Um, so a pliable object that can be made to, it, well, a pliable object that can be formed into many different things. Um, uh-huh. But it's also um, a reference to wicker man, um, to like the burning effigy, oh, okay. um, in the sense that the feedback um, network will eventually get so big that um, it's just it. Yeah, I say explode. It gets too big. Um, it oversaturates. Um, it's it's as I say, burn it all down, and that's right. It's it's a process that's meant to destroy it. Yes, it is. Um, however, so I I build these processes that I know will. Uh, destroy themselves, fall apart, or just get too big to control. But uh-huh. in performance or in the editing process, I, I tend to restrain that. So, like, the piece actually ends before that happens. Like, there's a lot more sure. recording, but as far as, like, making it a fixed media package, the end happens before the climax Okay. of the algorithm. So we're, yeah, we're, yeah we're, we're, like, on on our way. And we can kind of sense that, that we're on our way, but we never get there. Right. And that's a that's thing cool. that I would say that's a, a theme or a way I work in all of my music, whether it's it's live improvisation or fixed media. I'm always very aware of where the climax will be if I let it get there, but I don't really want it to quite get there, to leave you with a little bit of anticipation. Mm. Okay. Well, with that in mind, let's listen to this piece right now. So this is Wicker, and when was it written? It was written last spring, so that would be April 2016. Yeah.
Kind of like you kind of dipped into floaters a little bit, so maybe we can um, maybe we can talk about that next and just keep going with the uh, with the ARP. Okay. And uh, so you were, I mean, you you've been mentioning that you're pretty heavily involved in live electronic performance and improvisation, and when I listened to this piece, it seemed like that was kind of the method of composition mm -hmm. for it so you you said that this is a excerpt that we're, we're going to hear an excerpt so how i mean how long is this piece in total uh it's a 30 minute piece bam there it is all right <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to hear about half of it right right, right. 
the beginning half or end half? Beginning half. Okay. Again, you're you're basically like setting setting a network up. Does this does this use Super Collider as well? This one does not use Super Collider. It's only ARP, just ARP. Okay, and then you're you're just recording recording those sounds live. So, what is? Uh, I mean, in this one, you're actually touching and manipulating the real instrument. So, yes. what is? I mean, what's that? Uh, is that that process? Is that important for you versus like? for instance using an emulator like the the physical versus the digital Um, working physically versus digitally it it is very important um because i do come from a traditional music background being a flute player and then a bassoonist um when i perform i still feel the need that i i want to touch an instrument um i i don't really enjoy laptop performance um it is a thing i've done it is a thing that I still do sometimes, but it doesn't, um, it just doesn't feel the same as playing other hardware, um, synthesizers or controllers. Um, just because I, I need to feel like I have buttons to push or knobs to turn faders. Um, and the, the laptop just doesn't give me like, there also seems to be with the, with laptop performance, I've found that, if you are the performer with your laptop up on stage, it's very visually uninteresting. It's true. Um, As opposed to being able to, like, you know, reach your arms or, like, literally, you know, turn turn your hands or something like that. Literally, most of the time, you're just, you know, on a on a trackpad and then clicking clicking a button and that's it. Yeah. And I've seen some performers, um, one particular... Uh, person I'm thinking of is uh, Cole Ingram, um, who also does a lot of stuff with Super Collider. But when he's performing, usually he's standing up, and then when he he you you always for his performances you always see the screen, so you always see him like you know type type typey typing away, and then once he's ready, he like hits his uh, execute button, and there's like a big flourish of his arm to at least make it a little bit interesting. But most laptop performers I've seen don't even go that far so yeah. the there is that that idea that you know it is a performance and if something if something is up on stage you know it should have at least some visual interest right um and that's actually why i started getting into circuit bending and then building controllers um because i i felt like i needed to have like something tangible something that was an instrument something that looked interesting um blinking lights or interesting shape um to kind of to replace the bassoon or the flute or any other traditional traditional instrument and to get away from like the laptop which i see is sometimes i use it now and it's only out of necessity honestly because i can't travel with everything that i would usually play with so the physicality of the modular synthesizer is really important and it um like the tactile feelings of the buttons and the matrix switch, um, they, I think, inform the way that I interact with the instrument. Um, and it's different. Even if I had, like, an off-the-shelf controller that I was um, using to play an emulator, like, it would not it would not be the same because... No. I mean, it just... There's, there's no replacing, like, the physical instrument. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain there's a certain weight to the knobs. There's a certain you know, 
like it, everything was a little bit heavier, a little bit more solid at that point. Mm-hmm. And that definitely influences the way you move it and thus like your music moves. It's true. And for our particular instrument, um, the ARP has a few quirks. Um, for one, uh, the pitch can be wildly erratic, especially when it gets really cold and it's it's Providence. So sometimes it's, well, a lot of times it's really cold. And <laughs> right. um, a lot of the knobs have like certain points Well, they're short circuit. And that's something that you're never going to get from an emulator um, unless they purposely build those in, which is not a thing that really happens. Um, so, right. like, finding those those quirks um, where the matrix um, points, you know, gets a little little crunchy, um, where the knobs um, have, like, a capacitive. They are not supposed to be capacitive, but sometimes they sense capacitance and, you know, it may, it the um the proximity of your hand to the knob just changes the pitch mm-hmm. which is not supposed to happen um <laughs> so all of those things really like inform how i perform how i interact um how i navigate like my hands across the instrument and since you are pretty interested in noise as a compositional element have you have you really exploited the quirks of your particular instrument at brown compositionally um, yes, I could definitely go, um, go more into that, but I have mapped like all the knobs that, that do the thing that they're not supposed to do. Oh, yes. okay. So I know when I sit down, like, okay, I know that this is going to crunch here. I know when I switch these contact points, there's going to be a little static. Um, yeah, I, I am very well aware of those things and it's something that is definitely part of my compositional process. It's like making a orchestration manual for uh, for that particular instrument, right? Right. You know, well, the clarinet sounds good from here to here, but then you get here and it's uh, I don't know, maybe yeah. not right there. <laughs> That's good. When we were talking about Wicker earlier, I mentioned uh, Pauline Oliveros, and actually, this piece, like your process in making Wicker, reminded me a lot of Pauline Oliveros. But actually, the formal proportions or i guess maybe not the formal proportions but maybe how the piece unfolds it actually reminds me of a lot a lot of uh some of her music where there's a kind of rhythm of breathing Mm -hmm. in how some of the in in how some of the different sounds kind of unfold and was this piece improvised or what or were there plan set out floaters was on the macro it was composed but Uh to get to those points there was a lot of improvisation between between the points and okay that's how i approach most of my live improvisation um structured improvisation i'll call it um but with that in mind a lot of the time the plan fails like I'll, it'll get totally derailed and then it'll become something else. Right. Okay. Yeah. But you, but you have goals in mind. Right. And you're, you're trying to get to those goals. Right. But how you get there can change each time. Right. And I think that comes from being so having a relationship with the instrument. Um, even if I sat down and had no, like consciously, I had no idea where the piece was going to go. Because I've practiced with this instrument so so much, I 
I know like how the modules are going to interact with each other. So I think that even if I had no goals consciously, that wouldn't be the reality. It's like, mm-hmm. like there really is no random. Yeah. If, if we were to watch a video of you performing this piece, what would it look like? I mean, are you just constantly busy or is it kind of, okay, I'm going to do something and then let's just, let's just let it do its thing for a minute. With that piece, there's, well, basically you would see my hands on the knobs probably for the entire time, but the movements would be very small and sometimes not moving at all. So I I tend to not pull myself away from the instrument because I feel like it creates sort of a a break in the mental process of like performing. So I want to like have hands on the instrument the entire time. Um, But that doesn't mean I'm like actually manipulating the entire Mm -hmm. time. Okay. Can you talk about noise and when you first became fascinated with it as, as a compositional element? Mm. I think it's, it started in grad school part one when I was working on my, uh, my master's degree at Bowling Green. And I think it was definitely a reaction because I was so involved with the acousmatic music and I still love acousmatic music. Um, I don't really make it so much anymore. Um, but I really needed something to work against. Um, like all the really like pristine, highly edited, clean sounds just started to feel so like impersonal. I guess I started because I was listening to like EDM and IDM, whatever, um, that's really where, like, the seed started. And then um, once I finished um, my master's degree, I started getting into circuit bending with the Nicholas Collins book, um, Handmade Electronic Music. Um, and I was so excited for that book. I, like, I was on the, the pre-sale list, and when it finally came, it was, like, <laughs> such a magical day. Um, and then I stopped making music digitally for a long time. Um, uh-huh. for several years um, while I was just, like, just building um, hardware. Um, and, of course, like, when you're dealing with, like, circuit band instruments, then then it's a given. Noise noise is just the thing that you get. It's a um, fact of life. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so you can either embrace it or work really hard against it. Um, but I kind of found that, like, I really loved the noise, Um and then that kind of got me thinking about philosophically about noise, about what is noise. And I don't want to get too, too off topic. Um, but, but noise, I mean, it ha- factors heavily in floaters. It does. You know? Yeah. Uh, as opposed to, I think the, the other, you know, we've already heard Wicker and we're going to hear another piece of yours, which in which you could argue that you're kind of... S- going going to that more pristine end yeah. of asco- a- a- ah, of acousmatic composition that's a hard word for some reason today <laughs> um but in floaters i mean it's it's very it's very noisy mm-hmm. we're going to hear like you said before the first half of this piece floaters and this is also meant to be a fixed media piece yes this yeah. is a very okay. like slow burn, like mellow out. Slow burn. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs>
Before we get to Rome Point, let's talk about this project that you were doing for a while, this uh, this augmented bassoon. Yeah. Because that seemed really interesting to me. And also, I mean, just based on, you know, the the adjective composer collective, you know, Jamie Lee Sampson, she wrote a book on bassoon multiphonics. And it's very, somehow it, it, we seem to be bassoon heavy mm. uh, within the collective. So... Um, hopefully we have some bassoonists listening and could you tell us about this project and, and what you were doing to augment the bassoon? Okay. So it started be- because I, I had already been building controllers, um, that I was using in live performance. Um, 
but I sort of felt like I wanted to get back to bassoon, but I didn't, I don't know, I just, I needed to combine the two worlds, bassoon uh-huh. and my controller live noise set. So I'm like, how am I going to do this? Because, you know, bassoon, it takes all of my hands, all two of them. Right. And, uh, <laughs> And so it didn't leave really any room for me to play like the other in- the other controllers that I had. So I'm like, okay, so I have to build the controller onto the bassoon. And so what does that mean? Unless you get very dexterous with your feet. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, actually, I, d- I do play with the MIDI foot pedal. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so there's, there's that as well. Um, so with the bassoon, I'm adding um, sensors like... Um, vibration sensors um, and soft uh, potentiometers onto the body of the bassoon so that I have something really close to my hands. It doesn't interfere too much with the actual mechanism of the bassoon um, and that Mm -hmm. I can like work into like, yeah, work into the performance. And did you, did you write pieces for this or was it mostly used as a, like a improvisation tool? Uh, An improvisation tool. Yeah. It was really a way to, for me to have more control over my improvisational set rather than just using the typical, because I, I, I play with a, a pickup on my bassoon, a vocal pickup. So, I mean, pitch and amplitude tracking, that's a given, that's easy, but sometimes you need a little more. And are you still doing this or have you moved on? Um, I haven't been doing it in the past couple of years. Um, and that's only because I, I kind of got sidetracked on building this other instrument that I've been developing over the past couple, well, yeah, I guess two years now. And that's sort of, that's taken all of my controller time. So I haven't uh-huh. forgotten about bassoon, but um, I haven't been doing much bassooning lately. <laughs> bassooning. Bassooning, <laughs> yeah. What's the, what's the new uh, controller? Can you Can you tell us about it or is it too... Too top secret. No, it's definitely not top secret because I've been playing with it, even though it's still in development. I've been playing with it for a couple of years now. Um, so it's a box. It's basically basically a capacitive touch matrix. Um, mm-hmm. And I started developing this as a spatialization tool because I wanted to get um, almost back to acousmatic land and um and specifically in like in diffusion performance practice so i wanted to have a way to diffuse my uh my noise improvisation sets which sounds kind of absurd because you don't really think (laughs) about like playing noise in the environment that you would have a diffusion performance in Um, right so i wanted to build a box that that was one more portable than a huge mixing desk um yeah. and and quicker um something that you know because working with the faders there's a lot of mechanical movement um that really um creates limitations for the diffusion practice so the box um it's capacitive touch so it's very quick um and obviously like my hands like can navigate the entire box that sounds awesome i do you have do you have videos of you uh, doing this? Yeah, there are videos. I don't know if they're public yet. I could make them public. Okay. Yeah. It just seems like I mean, that would be a really cool thing. Like if someone's interested, you know, in actually seeing the thing, they could go to. So would they be up on your YouTube? Well, um, on my Vimeo, I know that there are Vimeo. definitely pictures on my website. Okay. Yeah. Of me playing. Yeah. All right. Great. So we'll. <laughs> 
uh, we'll plug the website at the very end but for those of you who just can't wait to see this thing your website is it's nicolecarolmusic.com carol two r's two l's great yeah so let's move on to the last piece um this is rome point becoming dusk and i'm pretty much a sucker for water sounds you know (laughs) they're great i mean so rome point is a place right Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. rhode island yes that's that's where you recorded these correct yes the the water sounds um just from a very basic googling it seems like there are a bunch of seals who hang out in rome point Yes, there are seals, and it's amazing. Um, the day I was there recording that piece, the seals were not to be found. Um, it was it was too early in the season, but yes, it's a place that seals go to hang out in the winter. Okay, I was kind of yeah. wondering if uh, that was that was supposed to be part of the piece. The seal seal sounds are they pretty loud out there? Um, I don't know yet. Oh, you haven't been yet. when they're there. Okay, I th- you know, it's like. Miss Connections, man. And <laughs> uh, there's a there's a Craigslist page for Miss Connections with seals. <laughs> right, but I I do have a date set to head out there. Soon okay, for another round. Yeah. All right. Awesome. It seems like it was a pretty windless day, which doesn't usually go with good wave sounds. Well, I could tell you that for a lot of the sounds, I actually put the microphone, I sort of nestled it um, inside some rocks, like a little hole in some rocks. So it was getting um, the water coming in from underneath the rocks, and you could hear the fizzle and the bubbles. Yeah. Um, But it was blocked from the wind. So, yeah, I definitely, that's something I think about because wind, when you're dealing with soundscapes, wind is always the enemy, unless you're writing a piece about wind or you need wind as a noise source. Other than that, you don't want it. So, But even a piece to... about wind, like I don't think you would use like wind coming into a microphone. You know? So actually, um, I think it's Lawrence English has a really great wind yeah? piece. All right. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And it's big. It's a, like, yeah, just go listen to it. What's the, <laughs> who's the composer again? Lawrence English. Okay. How did you create the pitch sounds? They they kind of sound like rocking a very big uh, container of water, kind of back and forth, like a plastic container of water. It's it kind of has that same resonance to me. So the pitched sounds come from the hydrophone recording. So I'm using a hydrophone, which is underwater recorder, as well as microphones above. Um, above the water. Right. So all the pitches are actually coming from what's really like like bubbles uh-huh. that that the hydrophone is picking up. And in those uh recordings there there's sort of a pitch center and I'm and I am using like a resonant filter to to amplify okay. those pitches. Okay. So that is not chance, that is by design. <laughs> <laughs> and wow, I mean th- that's that's pretty amazing because those sounded synthetic to me those are real mm-hmm. that's real i mean put, it's so put real through something but that's <laughs> wow that's so awesome um on your on your soundcloud in the notes for this piece it just says waiting on something magical and i thought that was yeah. like i thought that was a really interesting statement because one could interpret it 
as being like the description of the recording process you went through, you know, just kind of sitting, waiting, listening. Or I think it could be taken another way. It could describe the experience of listening to the piece. So what do you hmm. what do you think about that? I would almost say that it was quite literal if you believe in magic. Uh, so I, on that day, I did spend all day out there. Uh-huh. Um, I was recording video as well for, for another project. Um, so I was um, getting the cycles of the tides. And so th- even the title is very literal. Like, so the sounds that actually made it into the piece were from like, dusk like the end of the day so i was yeah it's just i was there all day into the evening until it was dark and i had to hike two miles it's a long hike out of the out of the woods it's an interesting place because um so rome point it's it's a beach but um you have to walk through pines to get to the beach Uh so it's a really interesting place so you get a lot of access to it there's a path but you definitely it's not. It's something you have to in a place you have to go to with intention. Right. You're not just yeah. gonna drive by and say, "Oh, let's stop." <laughs> yeah. No. No. So that's great because that makes it um, a little more private. Uh-huh. Um. Yeah. And then there's also because you have the woods behind the um behind the the beach, you get you know all the crickets and the deer and all the the wildlife that comes with the woods so are you it's a kind really of great place and are you kind of shaded uh a little bit from you know uh traffic sounds and stuff like that yeah 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 they're a good That's buffer cool. yeah so i mean i think you cultivate a very subtle sound world in this piece and you aren't you aren't hitting us with the like huge dynamic moments i mean I, probably the biggest part in the piece is about maybe a minute in when the waves get a little bit more more raucous but I think as a listener, we're we're drawn into the piece not by a sense of drama, but just the beauty of the world. So you kind of put us in this state of be- like like being wide eyed or just or just letting the piece wash over us. I mean, I know it's, it's water and wash over us. That's terrible. <laughs> I didn't really mean that for that, but um, but that's kind of what I mean by as a listener to the piece, we're waiting for something magical but in that state we're just you know it's just beautiful and that's it the the waiting the listening part of it is just like being you know like okay this is great show show me more magic or something like that that's kind of how i interpreted it i never really thought about it from that point of view i mean being the composer like knowing my process it was definitely like what am i waiting on what did i you know what was i waiting on during the process of capturing uh, the field recordings. And the piece, I mean, it honestly, it does have a narrative, a narrative of being engulfed by the waves. That's why you maybe said that, because that was the intention. (laughs) Um, And then, I don't know, once we're engulfed, like what what happens when you're drowning? You're like, you're waiting on something. You're waiting to be rescued, or you're just waiting for the white light. (laughs) <laughs> wow that's where this piece went i didn't get that at all that's amazing so it's it's about drowning man <laughs> i'm a little obsessed with death no. okay a side note <laughs> well 
I mean, maybe, I guess I'm interpreting it differently. Like, I tend to, um, I tend to have dreams, like reoccurring dreams, and one of them is being able, basically. I'm a person, but I have the abilities of a fish, so I can just stay underwater for a long time. And that's really awesome to me. I love those dreams because, you know, you swim around real fast and you get to be underwater. You're in this different world. But, like, that's kind of how I was – that's that's the lens where I was coming from it. Like, oh, yeah, we're just underwater. This is great. <laughs> I didn't know I was that's... supposed to be dying. <laughs> <laughs> Or being rescued, or being rescued. Um, okay, all right. Have or to being be rescued. about death. You know, that's only that's only my process. All right, you know, fair enough. You have to come from somewhere. Uh, so this is Rome Point becoming dusk. Thank you. 
So we'll get to the last question that I ask everyone who is on the podcast is uh, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? I knew when I was very young that it was a thing I was going to do. There were some years in there where I was like, you know, I'm going to be a marine biologist. I, I really just need to go play on the beach all the time. But, um, you know, my mom was a flute player so she would play in the house when I was very young so I I knew I was gonna grow up and be a flute player that's what I was gonna do and then I realized that I have terrible terrible stage fright so that (laughs) that did not work out I spent so many years in high school um in junior high being like overcome with stage fright and being so sick at my stomach every time I had to go perform that I'm like I can't this is not the thing for me. So then I got into composition. Um, I was, I really love theory, um, even though 
I'm an electronic music composer mostly now. I really love theory and just working with patterns. Um, com- composing became a game. Right, it was yeah. a game to like, yeah, that, well, my my dad was a, uh, he was a professional gambler. So oh, between okay. my mom being a flute, a flute player and my dad being um, a gamer, um, and that's all I did with my dad. My parents were separated when I was very young. And that's pretty much all I do with my dad is play games all the time. Um, pool and dominoes and cards. And so I guess it was like coming into composition was like merging those two influences. Okay. Do you still have pretty bad stage fright? Because you, I mean, with the things you're doing with improvisation, you know, Um, or, or was, or was that, or was improvisation kind of a way to get back into performing, but in a more safe environment, I guess. I mean, improvisation isn't safe, but right. So, so it's interesting to hear you say that. Well, I realized the thing, the thing that made it very difficult was the stage right kind of shut down my uh, like respiratory oh, okay. um, functions. So, being a wind player, it was very difficult to deal with stage fright and like, like, like honestly, like sometimes not even being able to catch my breath. Right. Yeah. Um. And it wasn't about shaking hands or, yeah, it was it was really about breath control when I got really, really anxious. Um, so playing um, with controllers, like, takes that element out of it. And, yes, I still right. get nervous. I think everybody gets nervous sure, when they're in front of, of the crowd. But now I, that I don't have to, I don't have to, like, worry about, is my body going to be able to do the thing it needs to do? <laughs> so then it, it becomes a mental game, and mental is easy. Bam, there it is. <laughs> so it was really, for you, it was really melding the two influences of your parents. And then, I mean, when did you, you started flute when you were how old? Uh, when I was 10. When you were 10. Yeah, which is which is standard in my school. Everybody, you okay. know, starts in, yeah, at that age. Um, and then when did you decide on composition? Was that high school or college? It was high school, and ironically, it was when I was going to flute camp. <laughs> I actually went to flute camp. That's a thing. Um, and taking theory classes in flute camp in junior high would, when I realized that I wanted to compose. It was, yeah. the- it was theory that got you into it? Yes. That's cool. Yeah. And also Mozart arias, honestly. Like, I just, I mean, even how, can, now, how like, can you go wrong with Mozart, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting to hear you say that consider like I mean it's it's not that surprising because you know good music is good music no matter what but you take you you take your music and then you think about Mozart arias okay yeah I mean it, there's nothing I don't think is there anything more beautiful I don't think I write like objectively beautiful music but Mozart did and it's inspiring. Well, I don't. I don't know about that. Like, I guess it depends on your your de- definition of beauty at the moment. Sure. I would sure. argue. Th- I would argue that Wicker is a beautiful piece. So. Well, thanks. No problem. Um, but it's not the magic flute. <laughs> well, <laughs> very few things are. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So uh, where can people find you online? You have pretty much a single handle that you go by online. That's Is that correct? It is. Noisemaker. Noisemaker. I've been Noisemaker since like 2003. So noise N0, the number zero, N0IZMKR. Yes. Bam. Noisemaker. You can find <laughs> you on uh, YouTube. So, wait, um, not in YouTube. YouTube? Do it? Uh, not maybe. Okay, maybe no I YouTube. can't even Forget keep track. YouTube. But definitely, definitely uh, on Vimeo, Vimeo, SoundCloud, and Twitter. I might still be on MySpace. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, um, everyone who is at who is a certain age had had. <laughs> A MySpace that may or may not still be in existence. It was just like <laughs> there. There must be like thousands, hundreds of thousands of just abandoned MySpace pages. I wonder if they ever take them down because I have friends who, um, for instance, a, a composer who was on this a while ago, Charles Halka. He still like his MySpace page from his band when he was in high school with his brother is still up and i still make fun of him for it so it's like you know there must be just a wasteland of uh of discarded (laughs) myspace pages but you are also on twitter as noisemaker yes and my website and your website nicole carol Carol music.com two r's two l's two r's two l's yeah (laughs) well thank you so much for doing this nicole thanks rob it's been fun Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.